One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Askew was the daughter of a Lincolnshire knight. Born in 1521, she was married to a much older man, Thomas Keem, to whom she bore two children, but with whom she shared no affinity, especially not of mind nor faith. Chucked out of the marital home in the early 1540s, she walked into Lincolnshire Cathedral and occupied it for six days, reading the newly translated English Bible. This was bad enough, But when pressed after her arrests in 1545 and again in 1546, she revealed herself to be so convinced of Luther's doctrine that scripture alone possessed authority that she adopted a position on the nature of the sacrament of the mass that imperiled her life. Because she could not find it in scripture, she refused to believe that the bread eaten in the mass became Christ's actual body and instead argued that it is but a remembrance of Christ's death or a sacrament of thanksgiving for it. That you call your God, she doubled down, is but a piece of bread. In Henry VIII's England, such beliefs were heresy. Somehow, her case came to the attention of Sir Thomas Risley and Sir Richard Rich, key figures at Henry VIII's court. As a result of their ministrations, she became one of only two women to have been tortured in the Tower of London. They even went as far as to turn the wheel of the rack themselves. But we have from her something we have from so few women in the 16th century, a written record of her words. I now rejoice in heart and hope bid me do so, for Christ will take my part and ease me of my woe. Thou sayest, Lord, whoso knock, to them wilt thou attend, undo therefore the lock, and thy strong power send. More enemies now I have than hairs upon my head. Let them not me deprave, but fight thou in my stead. On thee my care I cast, for all their cruel spite, I set not by their haste, for thou art my delight. And to explore what those words can tell us, I'm joined by Professor Jennifer Richards, who is Joseph Cowan Professor of English Literature at the University of Newcastle. Among her many publications on the history of reading and the history of rhetoric in 16th century England, 
Professor Richards is the author of Voices and Books in the English Renaissance, A History of Reading, published by OUP in 2019. It won the 2020 European Society for the Study of English Award and was highly commended by the DeLong Book History Prize 2020. Thank you so much for coming on today to talk about Anne Askew, who I think is one of the most fascinating women of the Tudor period. Can you introduce Anne? Who was she and how did she come to attention? Anne Askew was a gentlewoman from Lincolnshire who converted to Protestantism. She came from a gentry family. She was married quite young to a Catholic local farmer, I believe, Thomas Kane. But they fell out. They came from very different religious backgrounds. What's important about her is that she goes to Lincoln Cathedral and reads the Bible, spends six days there as a kind of act of resistance or affirmation of her faith. And why this matters so much is that in 1543, Henry VIII had published a new act for true religion, which had banned the reading of the Bible for certain groups, be labourers, it was apprentices, and it was also women. So this is an incredible act of defiance. Her husband says in the records violently, threw her out, and she attempted to get a divorce. Anyway, so that's the beginning of her story for me. And then she goes to London. And then her story, one of persecution, really takes off. So this is who she is. What interested me in Anne Askew is the examinations that survive of her writing. And they were disregarded until about 40 years ago when they were recovered and edited her record of her interrogations, which she supposedly wrote with her hand or dictated, are published, edited by John Bale. And that is the beginning of interest in her as a woman writer. My interest was in this as a potential oral record of a lost female voice. So Anne, having done this thing that she is not allowed to do under Henry's act the advancement of the true religion is interrogated is in the end racked in the tower of london and famously thomas brisley and richard rich throw off their robes and racker themselves and as you say we have this incredible resource of the records of her interrogations let's talk a bit about those though the process by which we have them and how they were edited by John Bale, and indeed who he was. Yes, again, like many people, John Bale had been a Catholic. He'd been a monk and had converted, and he becomes a radical. And what's important to this is that he's quite fanatic. He has an incredible voice in print. He's been called brass-knuckled. He's got a very strong voice. He's very committed to the Protestant cause. At the time which he receives the manuscripts of her own record, as we believe it is, he was on the continent, he was in danger. Anne Askew, for two years, she's in and out of prison. There are two documents that we have in print, the first examinations and the latter examinations, 1545, 1546. The first time she was in prison, interrogated by the Bishop of London, Edmund Bonner, and his archdeacon, And what they want to find out about is how heterodox her faith is. And then she's released. The second time is much more serious. That's when you get Risley involved and Richard Rich and Stephen Gardner. 
And this is where she's going to be condemned as a heretic. And that leads to her execution. And what they're interested in is her connections up to the ladies-in-waiting around Catherine Parr. So they're interested in the networks and the associations and how deep Protestantism has come into the court. Now, it's really interesting. We don't really know how the writing came about. I think it's fair to say these are Anaskew's words. But the form they come to us is edited by John Bale, who has his own agenda. So we have his words set alongside her words in print, different fonts. He's commenting on, he's surrounding her words. That's created some interesting discussion among literary scholars and historians about how much access we have to Anne Askew. Yes, many feminist scholars you note have found the text of Askew's examinations troubling because it seems that her voice is controlled by Bale. So I guess this big question, and I suppose this is true of almost every woman we're reading in history, but how much is what we hear Bale's voice and how much is it Askew's? For me, that is the really interesting question, and that was my starting point for thinking about Anne Askew. The simple answer to that question is we can't know, we will never know. But their writing styles are very different. And the thing that, for me, that was of particular interest about Anne Askew in Bale, because of course we have got Anne Askew's text stripped of Bale in John Fox's Acts and Monuments. So you could read it without his voice. And he's definitely using her words for his own religious propagandist ends. So we do have a text that is being controlled to some degree. But she does have a distinctive voice. Her language is very stripped back compared to Bale's. But the thing for me that was really important is why he's so interested in having this text and hearing her voice and seeing her words into print. Why does it matter to him that we have a female speaker, female writer, talking back to the bishops. Because what you've got is, let's remove Bale for a moment. In Askew's words, you've got the questions that she was asked by the interrogators, and then her responses to them. So in her responses, you've got, just go back to the original story about her sitting in the church in Lincoln, reading the Bible for six days. You've got this strong sense of defiance, a strong sense of her belief in her own salvation, and her responses are always defiant, always resistant. She always wins. Even if she's silent, she's achieving something. So I think that it's just remarkable, actually, to see sometimes she's got two, three people in the cell interviewing her, and the sense you get from her prose of somebody calm, responding, sometimes refusing to respond, but acutely confident of who she is, where she is, and also where she's going. It's fascinating that we have the two texts to compare against each other. What does it tell us to put the edition that Bale created against what Fox has as a record of Askew's words? I think I must be alone in actually liking Askew's words in Bale's text, because it depends for me what you're interested in is recovering a woman writer or whether you're interested in a woman who speaks back and who speaks the words of scripture. Both are true of Askew. She's writing or she's dictating, but she's also, this is an oral text, so she's created a record 
of what she was asked and what she said. And what she says is often biblical quotation. She doesn't give long theological responses to the questions she's asked. She quotes back scripture and she challenges the bishops. Bale is interested in her because he implies that her knowledge of the Bible is better than the bishops because she's come to her faith through the reading of scripture. So what you've got is a record of writing, a record of an interview or interrogation, let's call it what it is, and you've got a record of a woman reading. And she's reading in the moment, she's probably got a Bible with her in her cell, but a lot of what she's saying is articulating, animating scripture through quotation in her responses to her interrogators. And I think Bale is really interested in the power of her voice. And I think that's fascinating because, of course, she is a writer insofar as she has made sure that these things have been written down. But her primary purpose in writing very much seems to be having a record of those oral encounters. And so making sure that her words are heard and it happens to have been done in a written fashion. So it feels like that your end here is very much more following what at least Askew had in mind. Yes, it's not about Askew herself. It's about the Word of God. So for Bale, she's a better spokesperson for the Word of God than the bishops. It's as simple as that. And that's amazing because what we've got then is we've got this lay woman who is demonstrating more scriptural education than these learned bishops. It's a reversal of plain speaking through scripture versus years of education and high theology. It's as simple as because she reads the Bible and studies it and follows it, she is a better Christian and is wiser than her esteemed counterparts. And I suppose that's why Bale's edition is so useful in some regards, although we have been worried about him ventriloquizing her. What he's doing for us, who are actually probably much less learned in the Bible than Askew, is identifying each point at which she's doing that. Often she says that's in 1 Corinthians and gives the chapter number. But if she doesn't do that, she's still quoting the Bible and Bale helps us recognise where that is. That's exactly right. That is what he's doing. So he's helping us to understand that she is speaking scripture. And he obviously has far more quotation, but she is able to say, or she's recorded as saying, as you just said, Corinthians 1 and so on. So we never get that from her interrogators. But that issue of ventriloquization is really interesting because obviously 20, 30 years ago, there's a real sense that preoccupation with Baal ventriloquizing and Askew. But actually, he's really careful to set out her words, distinguish his voice from her voice. And he does that through the mise en page, the way in which the text is set out. Very clear who's speaking, whether it's Baal or whether it's Askew, we're told. It's almost like it's a dramatic script. And also with the font. So he makes sure that her words are in a much larger font than his. But this is all about ventriloquization. It's all about who ventriloquizes who and who can speak the words of the Bible. So go back to the 1543 Act for the Advancement of True Religion. And if you're a woman, you can read the Bible, but you can only do so in the privacy of your own home. You can't speak the word. So what Baal is doing is enabling, allowing, celebrating 
the fact that she is speaking. Okay, got it. That's really helpful. Did you know that the earliest condoms were made of animal guts and they were designed to be reused? Or that beans were once considered to be an aphrodisiac? Join me, Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a new podcast from History Hit, where I, Kate Lister, ask the questions about the stuff we didn't learn in history lessons, or sex ed. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages, to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe to Betwixt the Sheets now, wherever you get your podcasts. Selling a little? Or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. So, in other words, what Anne is doing is, as you said, an act of resistance. This tells us something about the nature of her faith, I suppose, and the nature of where that puts her in contemporary religious debates. Because I was struck by you saying at the beginning that she's a Protestant. We're in the sort of 1540s by now. There were obviously are Protestants. Luther had nailed that to the church door, or maybe not, you know, but in 1517. And yet, in Henry VIII's England by the 1540s, there aren't that many people who would call themselves a Protestant. That tends to be something reserved for German Lutherans. Is Anne's position extreme, do you think? It depends on what's your perspective. She seemed extreme, certainly to her interrogators. Henry VIII's at the end of his life. When she's executed, what is he, about six months away from his death? But it's become quite conservative in these sort of early 40s. 
She's not following the established faith at the time. She's on the edges of that. But she's committed to, I would say, religious empowerment through independent reading of the Bible. She's not alone because we know that Catherine Parr and there are certainly other members within the court around Catherine Parr who are also reformed, religious reformists there. She's not alone, but she certainly is unusual in that respect. But her act of resistance itself, maybe it's not unique, but it's quite unusual. It is almost unique for a woman in this period, isn't it? I think it's incredible. I find it remarkable. She was 25 when she died. Wow. Yes, that makes a big difference, doesn't it? She's really young and she must have had a really powerful sense of faith not to waver in any way. She was burned. This is her death at Smithfield in 1546. Yes. So she's racked, as you were saying at the beginning. It's incredible for a woman of her rank to be treated in this way. They must have been really worried about her and her links, maybe to the Queen or to certainly aristocratic women. So it's very unusual in that respect. But the sense of faith and commitment that she's unwavering, I just find this incredible just to think about it. She's incredibly brave. So what we clearly have here is a sense that the power of this one young woman is such that it is putting fear into some of the most powerful men in Tudor England. And why is that, do you think? Yes, I think that's right. She stands for everything that's not quite acceptable. The really important starting point for me is just always to think about the act for the advancement of true religion and who it allows and who it doesn't allow to speak the words of the Bible or to read in public. There's a real sense for the Protestants, Evangelicals, whatever you call them, that sense of empowerment through the reading of Scripture that's in your own language, that's not... For me, this another point of departure, this is also a couple of decades earlier, but it's thinking about the translation of the Bible into English, but before that, the translation of the Bible into Greek, that sense of trying to get closer to the Word of God, to understand it, to overturn centuries of scholastic interpretation. And then there's a question about who has access to that, Who can share that? And do you get the word of God? Is it mediated through layers of representatives of the church? Now, a Protestant view would be there's centuries of corruption, that actually you want to have a direct relationship with God. And ask you belongs to the group of people who represent the possibilities of education and salvation, make it even stronger, through understanding, through own reading of the Word of God. I think that must have been absolutely mind-blowing. I think it's a huge change. Because it's so easy for our current age, which is generally relatively ill-educated with regard to these things, and where we feel like we have a lot of freedom to read what we want, for the most part, to grasp the importance of this and why this was so radical, why this changed things so much. And I suppose at the heart of it is that idea that you yourself can make decisions about your fate, that you yourself are empowered to choose 
And I suppose it's about where authority lies. And throughout the day, we receive information. We feel that we make decisions on the basis of that, much of which is mediated, I suppose. How can we help our people today understand what this really meant in this early 16th century, do you think? This is really interesting. And I can see exactly what you're trying to get to the nub of why it was so important that a woman burned to death in a square in London and knew that was going to happen and didn't recant and why so many powerful people were involved in trying to shut her down. So a lot of this must be about overturning of a hierarchy in which people are deeply invested. So it's part of that. But I wonder that the thing that's really perhaps shocking about it as well, or important from Anne Askew's point of view, is the power of what she's doing. That it's not just about opening a book and reading it. It's also about reading it aloud or saying those words or having direct access. It's about two, not anybody's books, not like somebody opening one of my books or your books and reading it out. And it's the word of God as it has been shared. And it's, you've got these humanist translators trying to get closer and closer to what they think is the word of God, trying to remove layers of annotations and misreadings and misappropriations so that people get a more direct connection with God, with Christ. I was always struck by Erasmus's praise of folly, which accompanies his own, okay, he's translating it into Greek, not into European vernacular. But he makes a woman the spokesperson, so Folly, the speaker of that text, which is about how to read the Bible, he makes Folly a female character. And she is both foolish in that she just speaks out, she just says what she wants to say, she's clownish, and she reads the Bible without any gloss. And yet, by the time you get to the end of that book, the point is that she's getting closer to its meaning than all of the theologians and their many complicated ways of allegorizing and trying to interpret. So it's the difference between interpretation and direct access, which Askew helps us to understand, is simply speaking the word of God in your own language. That's what happens when you read a translated Bible. That for me is the really powerful act. And yet, in the narrative, she doesn't simply read the Bible, she quotes it in order to contest the authorities who are against her. And that is precisely what Henry VIII had feared. Exactly. In 1545, when he complains about the word of God being sung and rhymed and jangled in every alehouse and tavern, it's because it is so anarchic, because it gives people the weapons to use against authority. It gives Anne things to say back against the people who really she should be in deference to. You're not in control any longer if that happens. I think it's interesting that after her death, there are lots of different ways in which her words live on. So obviously we have the book with annotations, his voice around hers. Then you have acts and monuments, but then there are lots of different reports as well. And I think there was one report which described, which you would think of one radical reformer, you'd think that they would be more sympathetic to Askew, but they describe her as gadding about gossiping so they don't see her in the way that Bale did as an important spokesperson for the word of God. And I think that is to do with her gender and how shocking it was to invest so much authority in this female reader. And it's interesting in this very 
highly gendered age that we have here the rhetorical power of a woman's physical voice speaking out. What do you make of that? I just think it's really fascinating. It's not about always speaking. Sometimes she's silent, and that is also very powerful. But one of my absolute favourite moments in one of the first examinations is when she's presented by Edmund Bonner with a confession of faith that he wants her to sign or to approve. So it's all happening orally. So actually it's documented in the first examination. But he reads it to her and says, do you assent? But he reads it in her name. So he's ventriloquizing her. Then she writes it out. Effectively, she says no. So it's not just about her speaking. It's also about her refusing as well. Refusing to repeat words that are being given to her. Yes, so that we can achieve resistance and agency as much by our silence as by our words. Especially if you then go on to talk slash write about being silent. (laughs) Yes. I wonder whether distinction here between the written form and the performance and the orality of what's going on. And we've been very interested in Askew as a potential woman writer we can recover for the growing canon of women's writing and I think that really is important but there's something even more powerful than the written word and that is the speaking of somebody else's written word which is the bible there's something about that act of speaking through the bible which I think is the real act of defiance in this period and I suppose in part that also comes down to gender because as a woman speaking illegally in the 1540s the word of god she's speaking the words of men and applying them to herself so she's very much challenging gender hierarchies there as well i really think there's a lot to be said about her speaking the word of men speaking the word of men in the bible as well so at the end of the first examination it's attributed to her and it's one of the psalms from the bible psalm 54 and it's david speaking, David calling down on God to revenge his enemies, the enemies who are persecuting him. So that we have this psalm right at the end of the first examination in the voice of Anne Askew. So what we're being asked to do as a reader is to end this document, read the psalm, but to imagine it being spoken to us by Anne Askew. So she takes on the character of David and David's call for revenge becomes her call for revenge. So that, for me, is a fantastic embodiment of that defiance of speaking through men. In a way, it doesn't matter to me whether she wrote it or not. It's the fact that Bale wants us to imagine her speaking it that I find incredibly powerful. And as we've indicated, the consequence of this speech, and indeed this silence, but this resistance by Askew is that having not broken, having not given them what they wanted and become the sort of dutiful, submissive woman that they want her to be, Anne is carried to Smithfield, carried because she's so broken she can't walk, and burnt at the stake. How would you like us to remember Anne Askew? Her beliefs are very different to our own, but it's not hard to connect to her story as a story of a young woman who had unwavering faith and who was defiant, but she's obedient to the word of God. 
there's a point to her defiance. But I think I would like us to remember her also as a figurehead for many of the powerful, let's say, vocal male reformers who I think it's very interesting. They've got Bale, you've got Fox, you've got many others wanting to promote, record, share Anne Askew's words. Not only Anne Askew, you've got Lady Jane Grey, you've got other women as well. I wonder whether we have paid attention to the importance of the female voice, the female acts of disobedience to these early reformers. But also just to find it hard to imagine the sheer bravery of what she faced. And it's just an incredible story of terrible brutality. Yes, I've always found it very moving to think about those last moments of those burned as heretics. You're absolutely right. The bravery is astonishing. And I suppose for me, Askew feels like a really important symbol of the way in which these powerful men are trying to crush the spirit of this one woman and her friends. And yet, even in burning her, they haven't managed to silence her. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on Anne Askew and really bringing her to popular and public attention once again. It's great to hear her voice and indeed yours. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Susanna. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter, with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.